This is Deb Donig with Technically Human, a podcast about ethics and technology, where I ask what it means to be human in the age of tech. Each week, I interview industry leaders, thinkers, writers, and technologists, and I ask them about how they understand the relationship between humans and the technologies we create. We discuss how we can build a better vision for technology, one that represents the best of our human values. Today, I'm sitting down with Dr. Peter Benuti. Dr. Peter Benuti, MD, is a surgeon, inventor, author, professor, consultant, and entrepreneur. He is the founder of Benuti Research, a medical device incubator that has developed products and technology used around the world. He maintains his clinical and surgical practice, focusing on the integration of robotics into surgical procedures. He is the founder and president of Relieve, a company whose technology has already been clinically proven in more than 700 patients for the treatment of brain-related disorders. Relieve's ultimate goal is to solve one of the critical remaining barriers in brain health, which is the ability to bypass the brain's natural barrier, preventing the delivery of effective drugs for strokes, cancer treatment, and other degenerative disorders. Dr. Benuti is a pioneer in minimally invasive surgery. He has over 500 patents and applications, more than 700 licenses and multiple FDA-approved products to date. Major corporations leveraging his technology include Hitachi, Kaifon, Covidian, U.S. Surgical, Biomet, Arthrocare, Synthes, Zimmer, Biomet, and Stryker. He's a prolific speaker, lecturing internationally, and has trained over 100 surgeons in his surgical techniques. In his career, Dr. Benuti has received more than a dozen industry honors and awards for his achievements. Dr. Benuti earned his medical degree at the University of Cincinnati College of Medicine and completed his orthopedic surgery residency at Cleveland Clinic Foundation with international fellowships in Canada, Australia, and Austria. Hi, Peter. Hi, Deb. So, Peter, I wonder if we could just start off with some basic material about the history of how we have attempted to understand and use technologies to intervene into brain functioning and health before we get into some of the nitty gritties about the technology that you're working on to treat central nervous system disorders, including strokes and cluster headaches and seizures and paralysis. I'm really excited to get into that, but I think it's important for our audience to have some context about how we think about and understand and have historically treated the brain. So what in broad strokes are some of the main landmark historical breakthroughs and moments that have changed how we think about and how we treat the brain? I think probably the first is the general concept that neurons in the brain, once they're injured or damaged, are permanently injured or damaged and not, cannot be restored so or healed or create new neurons or new new nerve cells. So the, the basic premise in the past has been that damage to the central nervous system is permanent, and therefore the best you can do is try to rehabilitate or recover the residual brain tissue that you have left to optimize your function, your activity, your mental status. And I think that's the starting point to where we'd like to challenge the, the general concepts of technology, where we believe there is a neurorestorative type opportunity that exists. The main challenge is that this, this type of process is limited by something called the blood-brain barrier. And that's a unique protective mechanism for the brain that limits access to the brain by only very small particles. We, we use Daltons as a measurement of size. So typically, sugar can go across the brain, sugar molecules, but let's say starches, which are made up of complex sugars, cannot pass across the brain because their molecular size is too large. And that type of concept really limits the mechanisms and the ways that we can treat the brain. If there are technologies or mechanisms that we can open the blood-brain barrier or expand these tiny pores or openings, within the vascular system to the brain and temporarily allow larger particles or larger molecules through, we can start to treat the brain like we can treat the peripheral tissue in your body. So for example, if you have an infection, you take antibiotics and they can cure infections. But if you have an infections in the central nervous system, they can be catastrophic because it's problematic to get many antibiotics across the blood-brain barrier and treat the brain. So it makes it relatively challenging. In another function, you look at this and say it also affects 
our ability for cognitive function as we age with neurodegenerative disorders. We look at mechanisms to treat, let's say I'm an orthopedic surgeon, to treat arthritis and say, well, look at, can we grow new cartilage by putting stem cells and growth factors and try to get new cartilage to grow and heal on damaged bone so that we don't need joint replacements or that we can treat degenerative disorders. Well, in the brain, you can't do that again because only tiny molecules can go across. But if we could open the brain up to stem cells, to biologic tissues, we can now look and expand these processes. And that's what we're interested in pursuing so that we can sit and look on the early stage uh, children that are born with disease, damaged tissue, cerebral palsy, central nervous system disorders, or swing the spectrum to patients that have had cerebrospinal injuries, like, like uh, they've had fractures where they're paraplegic, or more acutely, as we see now with people that have different types of central nervous disorders like Alzheimer's, patients that have ALS or CTE and football players, uh, sports athletes, or just simple dementia that occurs, are there new mechanisms to treat it? And that's what, that's what our focus is. And our job is to potentially, or our goal is potentially access, control access to the brain. Well, you've just opened up a lot of different questions for me, but I think I have to first pick up on and probe. You mentioned that you started off as an orthopedic surgeon. That's really interesting to me that by training, you are an orthopedic surgeon and you're working currently on these issues related to brain functioning. What got you interested in working on the brain? What's the story there? What's the trajectory that took you from orthopedics to brain function? And how does your training as an orthopedic surgeon translate into your current research on the technologies that intervene into brain function and health? Well, I've, I've always had a broad background, a broad interest in technologies and areas of the body that we can treat based on what patients' interests are and what patients require. So I my focus in medicine since residency has been on understanding what patients expect out of their care and how to optimize medical treatment and medical therapeutics for patient perspectives. So early on, I spent a broad palette of my time studying and looking at a number of different aspects of medicine and surgery. Did a lot of work in a number of patents in all technologies related to minimally invasive surgery access, visualization with endoscope, fiber optic scopes, how to hit repair tissue, how to heal tissue, how to replace damaged tissue. We got in, we then developed a, a business and a research incubator in a small town, Effingham, Illinois. So I started my practice and uh, 35 years ago, put my funds that I developed from my practice and put them into a research and development group that's now grown. There's about 15 of us. We have a 40,000 square foot facility and our team designs and develops technology. Initially, we were more in mechanically oriented medical devices, anchors, fasteners. Then we got into robotic technology and developed a lot of robotic joint arthroplasty. But as we looked at what patients are concerned about, we noticed that there was a huge challenge in terms of how patients perceive pain, how patients perceive function. And as we looked at the comparison of degenerative diseases in my space, orthopedic space, and we looked around, we said, well, we have this whole central nervous system, which is the untapped or essentially the great unknown for us as surgeons and physicians is how do we treat and manage disorders of the central nervous system? So I've done a lot of work with the Cleveland Clinic in the past. That's where I trained and did some fellowships. And now uh, and I was presented about four years ago with a technology that was started at the Cleveland Clinic and was launched for cluster headaches, which is a central nervous system disorder. People call it suicide headaches, which is the essentially the most severe painful condition that exists. About 74% of patients have suicidal ideation, which means they want to kill themselves because the pain is so terrible. And this technology was developed by looking at what's called the sphenopalatine ganglion, which is a nerve bundle kind of behind the nose up. And it was also, as I studied, also the autonomic and specifically the parasympathetic nervous system to the brain. So this technology, big picture, was able to develop an external powered device with a microsurgical implant. So there's an electrode and electrical ASICs, a computer chip that's implanted. And that has no battery pack. It's all externally powered and managed. 
And that system allowed you to control the parasympathetic nervous system. The company that existed was using it primarily to treat these cluster headaches. And the cluster headaches were basically the parasympathetic system or the autonomic nervous system to the brain gone awry and it was overreacting. So I saw that they were stimulating or overstimulating the, uh, the sympathetic and parasympathetic, the autonomic nervous system of the brain to shut it down, so to override it. And as I studied this, I said, well, if we were just to change the frequency instead of overriding and shutting down the parasympathetic nervous system and this sphenopalatine ganglion, could we stimulate it and what would the effect of that be? So I acquired the technology uh, with my friend and colleague, Frank Pepe, who's chief of ENT and plastic surgery at the Cleveland Clinic. He developed some of the technology and surgical approaches. And then a head of neurosurgery at the University of West Virginia, Ali Rezai, who was just recently on 60 Minutes, where he was talking about his ability to treat the blood-brain barrier with ultrasound. And those two had founded the company. I worked with them and said, hey, how can we look at changing this technology and not just treat cluster headaches, but with the same device, same location, same technology, simply change the frequency, and how can we treat the central nervous system with it? And that's how this all transpired. So linking some of my older historical understanding, meeting new partners, new colleagues, and looking at ways to bridge the technologies that we have in minimally invasive surgery and robotics and artificial intelligence and how to bring these together, take existing implants, and we're changing how they can sit and treat the central nervous system. So that's kind of a, a historical background, how, how I got into the space. And we've now been working three years on this for developing this for a number of other applications. There's a, there's a question worth asking here, I think, about some of the research that has recently come out about the, the concept of pain and some of the challenges of trying to treat pain. As I am aware of it, some of that research picks apart a kind of fundamental problem, which is that we can communicate our pain level. But on the one hand, um, we know that pain is real. We can see pain in certain ways registered through technological devices. We can see people respond to pain. And on, on the other hand, inversely to that, pain is one of the most subjective capacities that, that we have. We say something like, it feels like a hammer just hit me, right? This is the idea of not being able to express what's going on in our body, but rather having to use these kinds of figural terms in order to get at and to explain what the experience of pain is like. And we also know that the experience of pain and its subjectivity in particular um, makes it very difficult to treat pain because different people register different levels of pain for, for example, the exact same procedure when we know that the same thing is happening on, for example, the biological level. Some, some amount of that subjectivity makes it very difficult to uh, understand the experience of, of pain individually. And so I'm wondering, have the technologies that you are looking at changed um, how we think about pain? Does our understanding of pain change with regard to or in response to some of these kinds of technological developments? I would argue that that's, that's correct in that there's two, I think, big problems with the general concept of pain. One is what we would maybe call the organic component or the physical component, something that we as doctors, as surgeons, can develop and understand through a test or through some objective mechanism to say uh, the blood vessel has shut off here or this tissue has been injured by direct trauma and you can organically determine where that pain is coming from. The second is the subjective component and how that varies so much from one individual to another, a gender, race. We've, there's a n number of different studies that suggest that people interpret the same type of organic problem in multiple different severities of pain. But I think part of that is because we don't understand pain because it's very difficult to find the organic basis. And as we're delving further and further into these neuromodulation electrical systems that we're looking at and enhanced diagnostics that we have, we're burrowing down into being able to determine more and more the location, the focus, the exact cause of the pain, and then mechanisms to treat that. And with this technology, this is one area where we're able to turn on and off different nerve functions whether it's the sphenopalatine ganglion where we're working on or with other neuromodulation systems or 
certain types of blocks, anesthesia type blocks, where we can isolate and try to identify exactly where that pain is and then come up with procedures, treatments, medications, or even surgeries that can treat those. So I think the big area of growth is the general ability to understand where the organic component, to identify where the pain is coming from with some of these newer technologies and then how, how exactly to address that or treat that because now we can say that's it and I can do something about that. I, I think that's really changing very rapidly in the medical space and I'm, I'm excited because it helps patients tremendously. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that this gets at some of the fundamental questions that we continue to ask both in medical, biochemical, biological, and philosophical contexts about the relationship between mind and body. To go back to some of your training as an orthopedic surgeon, some of my best friends are orthopedic surgeons because I have had four knee surgeries, including three ACL reconstructions and a meniscus removal after a failed attempt to repair a, a meniscus that I eviscerated, all in the same knee. And one of the things that has come up in terms of my rehabilitation after those levels of multiple surgeries, um, which each of which require increasing amounts of, of rehabilitation, has become very evident to me and has been, I think, translated to me by uh, multiple different surgeons, which is that part of rehabilitating the knee is not simply building up the muscular structures that uh, undergird and support that knee, developing the relearning techniques of walking again normally or bending the knee, um, but also that the knee is a site of memory and that it is attached to dimensions of the brain that help store that memory and help store things like mobility or the ability to navigate geometric space. So that part of the rehabilitation actually became learning to reattach my visual perception with the knee mobility uh, and learning how to not rely uh, as I had been relying since the first surgery very heavily on visual cues, overprocessing in many ways the kinds of visual input that I would need and and trusting, I would say, the sight of the knee to be able to do that again or retraining the knee and, and developing that kind of uh, linking between the, the body's ability to store that memory mobility and the visual cues and the kind of cues that come in from consciousness. I guess I'm really curious to hear from you from your perspective as an orthopedic surgeon uh, how your understanding, and again, you're working between the brain and the body, has led you to understand the relationship between mind and body and the ways that those two things interact on a physiological level as well as a biochemical level in what we might call the, the, the integrated self. Well, it's obviously a very challenging question. A lot of it, uh, maybe my best response would say that it's complex and it relates in a functional perspective to a number of different facets. You brought up something about your rehab and your recovery. When you injure the joint, you injure the ligaments, you lose something we would call proprioception, the ability of where, to know where your body is in space without necessarily looking at it. So athletes, when they're injured, they revert to looking at their arms, legs to give them a visual cue of where they are because they've lost some of this proprioception. That can be built back up over time but that causes them to have feelings of apprehension, fear, the ability to say, hey, I cannot be as explosive as I used to be, or I can't do the same activity at the same level. And over time with training, that can come back. Not everyone, but the vast majority of, of people do. The second is we looked at functionality, range of motion. We have identified, and I have a, I have a strong interest in this area, is that functional range of motion also contributes to pain. If you have any restriction in range of motion, your body increases the pain substantially. The third is swelling, soft tissue swelling or swelling into a joint, as an example, is, is in and of itself causing pain, just the mere fact that you have edema or swelling. And the second is that if that swelling exceeds a certain amount, your body's strength drops substantially. So for example, as I was inject your knee with 10 cc's of fluid, you would lose about 20% of the strength in your quad and your hamstring simply because you have that extra fluid in your joint. You don't know that, but you're, you're weaker. Then the, the, the final is some of the, the challenges that we do surgically to patients is not really well understood, but I'll give you an example. So you had all these surgeries. They were all done arthroscopically. They punch a bunch of fluid in your knee. That fluid is not isotonic with the synovial fluid of your knee. In other words, it doesn't have the same particles per unit area. 
we use fluid that is isotonic with your blood because it's cheaper, it's more cost-effective. What's the problem with that? Well, have you ever seen your fingers crinkle up after you've put them in water, after you've taken a bath for a long period of time? Well, when you do a surgery that takes an hour, hour and a half, two hours, what do you think that the fluid does to the articular cartilage in your joint? Because it's not isotonic, it also damages the cartilage, and we've published on this as well, it damages the soft tissue on your joint so that it becomes stiffer and less functionally movable, so you lose flexibility in the soft tissue, and that also then causes pain, which led me to the understandings of what we do iatrogenically to patients that actually is problematic, which is, again, why I come full circle. Look at this from the patient's perspective. What are we doing to them? How do we change that? Physicians would say, well, you know, it's a surgery. This is how it has to be done. And I would argue and challenge that what we're doing is not ideal. And if we listen to our patients, we would come up with different solutions or different options and not purely focus on what's best for the surgeon, the doctor, the hospital. Always try to focus on what's the patient. So in this situation, we should be using different fluids, different technologies, do the same procedure, but do it under a different media. These are things that concern me. And then they flip to what we're trying to do in the brain. So for example, when you enter into the central nervous system, anytime you do an intra, uh, intracerebral surgery where you're going through the dura and into the brain, you're damaging that tissue in a similar fashion. And that type of trauma, even if it's small, can lead to significant disruption in nerve function, vascular flow, and or ability or problems with even things like epilepsy, seizures, other problems. So avoiding direct entry into the brain or intracranial procedures is also a major advantage. Again, looking at this stuff from the patient's perspective and led us to look at these concepts of access, control. Can we treat extracranially outside the brain, the tissues that are inside the brain, rather than getting aggressive and saying, hey, I'm going to take this damaged tissue and I'm going to put implants into the brain. I'm going to sit there and stimulate with electrodes inside the brain to try and treat that because that has massive complications to the patients and massive risks that I don't think are translated in many times to the patients. You can't talk about the mind-body link or mind-body problem, as it's sometimes called without bringing up the famous formulation by Rene Descartes, who described in his landmark meditation on the mind and the body, the idea of the self as mind and body in a dualistic form. Descartes argues that the nature of the mind, that is to say a thinking, non-extended thing, is completely different from that of the body, which is to say an extended, non-thinking thing. And therefore, it's possible for one to exist without the other. And for Descartes, very famously, our body is like a vehicle being driven around by what we'd fundamentally call the self. More recently, thinkers known as post-humanists, and this is a philosophical strain of people who are challenging Descartes and who are challenging Descartes um, by way of thinking through the way that our technologies in particular make that mind-body dualism very implausible. And those post-humanists have dedicated that stream of philosophy to challenging this idea. And fundamental to that challenge is the way that our understanding of the brain has been radically changed through new technologies that allow us to investigate the brain and intervene into brain functioning. These technologies allow us to explore the deep integration, the recursive interactions, and the feedback loops that take place between mind and body. So the question that I have for you is somebody who works on both the mind, or at least the brain, and the body is... Are the technologies you're creating changing our understanding of the relationship between mind and body or brain and body or mind and self, or even more fundamentally, what we might call the mind or the self? Well, I think yes and no, and that's kind of a silly answer, but I would preface this by saying that the peripheral body, the non-neurologic tissue that exists in the body outside the brain, is not necessarily dumb as people would argue, everything isn't necessarily controlled by the brain. Cells themselves have innate function that they're able to operate, much like you would see bacteria, my, other microorganisms, viruses. There is, wouldn't call it thought, but there is functional activity that can occur at a cellular level that is independent of what is dictated by the central nervous system. So there are micro levels of, of 
function, why an enzyme is created, why it's moved, how it reacts within a cell, is not controlled completely by the cerebrum, by the brain. There are functionality and almost, uh, it's, it's very difficult for me to describe, but it's, it's, it's like there are functional activities that Descartes would have argued are purely brain functions that really exist in the peripheral nerves, in, this, in the body itself, and in the cellular level, in a microscopic level, that don't exist in a macro level. So there's, that's one issue. The second is that the, we are learning more and more how the peripheral body, everything extracranial, has an impact on the central nervous system as well, and vice versa. So there is a strong linkage between the two. If you're functionally disabled, you need a knee, you have a knee injury, you need a knee replacement. Is that affecting central nervous system function and how is it? Whether it's pain, whether it's function, how it affects the other joint, how it affects reflexes, how it affects your ability to function, they are linked. And what we're learning as we understand more about how the mind and the peripheral body work in synchrony, there are interactions that are linked. However, I would argue that I believe more in Immanuel Kant's philosophy that there's extrinsic and intrinsic functions, both in the brain and in the body, that are relevant. And to simply say the mind and the body are, are separate and one's just simply a vehicle or a carrier for the other, I would argue is a little bit primitive the more we know about the mind and the body and, and the fact that the central nervous system, although it has effect on the entire body, there is at a cellular and microscopic level, there is also functionality that is independent of the brain. So I don't know if that answers your question, but maybe creates more questions than answers. <laughs> I think it creates more questions than answers. Um, but I want to get into the technology itself a, a little bit. What is the basic idea behind, and I think I'm trying to understand the, the terminology correctly, perhaps you can help me with the acronym, SPG-STIM. How do you come up with the technology and how does it work? Can you help us understand the science behind the technology and why it works? Okay, well, first is understanding the nervous system, the central nervous system, and the function of your body. There is something called an autonomic nervous system, which is, the, which is broken up into the sympathetic or stimulatory side of the blood system we call flight or fright, where, where your muscles will pump, your heart beats faster, you breathe more. And then there is the parasympathetic side of your nervous system where it relaxes you, the blood vessels dilate, improves blood flow. It, some people might say it's more of a calming effect. That's not exactly accurate. But it would slow down your heart rate, slow down respiratory rate. And so this nervous system exists in your body that functions independently of active thought. I don't think, for example, that my heart should keep beating, or I don't think necessarily that I should take, you know, breathe. It automatically happens. And that's what the autonomic nervous system does. It does automatic functioning the body. You can override that or overstimulate some degree other. So in the periphery of the body, we have something called the vagus nerve, which a lot of people know about. And that's, an, that's a main nerve that goes to the brain down and it can help control the heart rate your digestive system, your breathing, how blood vessels dilate. Well, the sphenopalatine ganglion, or SPG, is something similar to that, but it goes into the brain and it delivers the autonomic nerve pulses to the brain so it can dilate, for example, blood vessels or it can constrict blood vessels. So what we found is with cluster headaches, it's a disruption of the autonomic nervous system, the SPG, so that the one side of your face dilates, swells, your eyes dilate, you sweat, you tear, all off of one side of your face. It's, and so you're affecting the autonomic nervous system to the brain. So the SPG is on each side, and it can, sphenopalatine ganglion is one on each side, and it controls this. By overriding this sphenopalatine ganglion or stimulate, overstimulating it, you shut it down, you cause the vessels to constrict, you stop all the redness, and the pain in these cluster headaches would wait. In many pathologic conditions, though, that constriction, that decrease of blood flow, can cause substantial problems. So, for example, if you have a stroke, what occurs in a stroke is you, you can either have vasospasm where the vessels constrict, or you can have clots, and then you have vasospasm where they will occur, or you have intrinsic narrowing of the vessels, and that can become 
am and amplify the pathology of a clot going to brain, meaning that it can amplify the effects. And so you have more damage because of the reduced blood flow from these secondary effects. If you could reverse this and work against the normal reaction of the brain, which would be to dilate the blood vessels, improve blood flow, enhance the triangular peripheral circulation, you can potentially decrease the damage. And so the sphingopalatine ganglion controls that type of activity. The other thing that it can do is it, all, it also dilates the venous system or the veins leading out and the lymphatic system that leads out of the brain. So it allows you to drain other particles, possibly toxic byproducts outside the brain. So it has a, a multiple function. And what we found as we studied this, it also controls, at least in part, the blood-brain barrier, which are these tiny apertures that open and close that allow smaller or larger molecules to go. That's controlled by something called nitric oxide, which causes proteins around the blood-brain barrier to coil up, and then they will open. And if they uncoil, they close these small apertures. So it allows larger and smaller molecules to go through at some controlled basis. So the SPG is kind of complex, but it's an acronym for the sphenopalatine ganglion, which is essentially autonomic control to the brain. And by controlling that, you have an interesting process of things that you can do. And not just being able to open it, the second is to being able to rapidly close it also because this protective function is important because that's how you prevent viruses from getting the brain. You have other toxic products that get to the brain, other medications that you don't want to go into the brain or other nutrients that you don't want to go in the brain. So uh, you really have to be careful if you control this that you're not just opening and leaving the blood-brain barrier opener permanently, which is one of the worries about ultrasound therapy, but to be able to open it and predictably close it. And so we have some AI algorithms and other things that we work on that time this so that you can deliver appropriate treatments, turn it on and turn it off relative to the delivery process. And I can go on a little further, but that's uh, basically what we're looking at by controlling this access or the sphenopalatine ganglion. Blood flow, opening and closing blood-brain barrier, and essentially giving access to the vein if and when you need it. I'd love to hear a little bit more about some of the technical or technological problems or some of the problems that you identify in the brain or with the brain that pose um, limitations or that pose difficulties in developing this technology or where I have uh, other people, other researchers, other innovators come across fundamental challenges that limit their ability or your ability to intervene into brain functioning in the way that you are. Okay, so I'll give an example. So Parkinson's disease is something we've known about for a long time. You get these terrible tremors. And there's a simple medicine called L-DOPA that you use to try to treat. Uh, it's a dopamine. It tries to treat the Parkinson's tremors disorders. But the problem is it doesn't go across the blood-brain barrier very easily. And so companies for a long time have assumed that the blood-brain barrier is static, so they've tried to develop carriers that will take medicines like this and get them through the blood-brain barrier with carrier-type molecules, much like you would use, I don't know, alcohol to get things through skin or, or how you might use surfactant to enhance the, the flow into your, into your lungs for ARDS in children. So this complexity is adding one chemical to another chemical that's made it very difficult to consistently deliver this type of medication or even nutrients to the brain on a consistent basis. And so you're guessing, you're estimating, you're hoping that some percentage will go through. Another example we'll look at is Alzheimer's. Alzheimer's is an accumulation of beta amyloid. There are certain antibodies that can go in and treat the beta amyloid and remove these plaques from the brain. Ali Rezai, one of our, our, our chief of our scientific advisory board, wrote a very interesting paper about how he can treat that. But only one out of a thousand antibodies delivered in the, in the circulation actually gets into the brain without some treatment of blood-brain barrier. So you're market limited. So you take a medication, now these antibodies that uh, Eli Lilly and other companies are offering to treat this amyloid and treat Alzheimer's, very expensive treatments, and only a tiny percentage get through the brain. They have not developed yet a carrier that can deliver these through the blood-brain barrier. But if you can actually control the blood-brain barrier and open it when you deliver this medication, 
then you can sit there and enhance the efficacy of these medications. In fact, hundreds of medications are currently available, but they can't get across the blood-brain barrier, so we can't treat many of the central nervous system disorders. So big thing is one, they start with carriers because the concept was you can never open and close the blood-brain barrier. But we've realized now with high-frequency high ultrasound, you potentially can do that. And in our animal data, we have very strong animal data that shows that with our electrical stimulation at the sphenopalatine ganglion, we can even deliver antibodies as well as stem cells through across the whole surface of the brain and then turn this off so we can actually close the blood-brain barrier back down so that you, the safety and efficacy returns. A simple example would be your blood pressure is 120 over 80, but the pressure inside your cerebrospinal fluid is only about 10 millimeters of mercury. If you left that blood-brain barrier open on a simple pressure basis, you would cause significant swelling in the brain and you can cause significant damage purely by edema getting the brain because of the differential of the pressures. That's why it's so critical that you don't just open it, but you close it and it's very dangerous if this is treated where, that causes permanent damage to the blood-brain barrier. So it's very important that you maintain the protective function of the brain, especially the blood-brain barrier, because it is critical. I wonder if we could switch tacks a little bit and talk about some of the ethical issues involved in treating treating the brain. Uh, what are the ethical issues at stake in developing and implementing brain technologies? And, and maybe in a broader set of terms, what are the major issues at stake on an ethical level with your research? Well, I would, I would argue that the approaches that I, uh, we talked about with the controlling access, I think are very important, more from a physiological organic perspective, because you do not want to cause any damage uh, to the central nervous system. If you're going to treat it, you certainly don't want to uh, treat one area and cause complications somewhere else. So that's very important. That's what, we're fo that's what our focus is. But if we look at technologies that relate to implants or computer chips or electronical chips that are actually implanted in the brain, so those are intracranial devices or intracranial therapies, I think there are substantial ethical and potentially even legal issues because could those internal electrical devices be hijacked? Our technology is separate because we have an ASIC with external power. You cannot hijack the chip technology that we use, and it's also outside the central nervous system. But there is a lot of technology where you're trying to treat the disease, the damaged tissue by supplementing with internal electrical components or what we call active implants that are powered implants inside the body. Those have the potential that external devices could potentially turn them on or off or basically change the frequency or change the functional activity so that you can change how someone's body someone's central nervous system functions. And those, those areas are of some concern because they can affect personality, they can affect people's perception, and long-term, are they going to affect who you are as an individual? So there are, there are substantive ethical concerns, and I would argue many of these would more relate to active implants and implants that are intracranial more than extracranial. I think I know a little bit of, of what you're talking about. A couple of years ago, there was a critique of, I believe, a company called NeuroVista and a NeuroVista trial that implanted brain technologies intracranially in the way that you are describing in an attempt to treat seizures. And I believe, if I recall correctly, some of the outcome of that trial did demonstrate that these implants were changing personality. Now, of course, anytime you treat pain and you free somebody else uh, up to not concentrate on their pain, but rather to live a more leisure life, you're changing personality. But the critique went on to note that this particular device was also powered and controlled externally with one important consequence, that when the company went bankrupt or stopped its trial, the personality reverted back uh, to the original pre-implant pain-ridden personality. And in addition to that, people lost a lot of function that they had previously been able to access with, with these uh, forms of treatment. So it does seem to me like there are significant forms of concern around both the technologies as well as their impact on people who are either using them or who are attempting to care for others by having their loved ones, for example, participate in these studies. And I'm wondering, are there 
protocols or policies or ad advice or uh, general guidelines that you think that uh, the medical community should insist on in this particular technology that maybe are above and apart from the general bioethical stance that governs the way that medicine uh, generally attempts to control the activity, for example, of, of doctors or scientists when it comes to treating patients? Well, that, that's a challenging question, and I can always revert to my standard answer, which is I'm an orthopedic surgeon. We're as strong as an ox and twice as smart, uh, so, but sometimes I don't know that we're smart enough to figure that out. But I can say, yes, I do not, uh, I cannot cite something personally, but I I do believe that as we're looking at specific technologies that relate to human pose estimation and assessment of patients' physiologic and a mental status by doing specific video clips of patients' function and activity and storing those rather than looking at written descriptions of activities. I think one of the main challenges that I have with any general research, certainly musculoskeletal orthopedics, but also as it relates to central nervous system disorders, is we base our assessments and questionnaires and discussions with patients on written words, which often do not replicate what we see functionally with patients. If you were to take a video clip and look at someone's response to pain medication or functional activity, and then try to describe that afterwards, it becomes very different to put in words. Human pose estimation, you can use standard cell phone video camera and you can take short video clips, store these in the cloud, and then re reassess these so you can look for these subtle differences between one another so that you can determine if there has been a change and look at this objectively rather than trying to subjectively determine this through the written language, which is, I think, one of the major limitations of medicine in general. I struggle with it, and I believe if I was to make one recommendation, it would be that the these written documentation, electronic medical records, how we classify patients' functional activities, return, pain, how they respond to certain stimuli, that the, the written language does not do justice and cannot tell us from one day to the next what those changes are. But if we were to use artificial intelligence with video clips of specific body functions, activities, and these are stored and you can compare these two on a relatively rapid basis, which we can currently, you might have a better way of picking these subtle differences up and being able to objectively quantify them. And then coming back to studies, say your study, although I can't describe the personality difference, I can see it. They've changed how they move, how they function. And that would be a something that we have a better way to document these changes and then either close down or shut down or change specific studies. And we've not done enough to look at these uh, visual and auditory parameters and linking those and rather have relied too much on what I consider very basic written information that's done after the fact, which really doesn't help us in these very subtle changes or to give us objective data, which is where I see the biggest change in medicine coming next. I want to probe this a little bit further on the level of thinking about ethical and regulatory t challenges or needs with such novel therapies. How do you think about the differences between different regulations and ethics, not just nationally, but internationally? Many different cultures think in radically different terms about the idea of the self, the idea of the mind, the idea of the brain in ways that may limit or maybe even provide critique or skepticism towards some of these treatments. How do you think internationally, ethically, uh, across different countries and cultures, again, countries and cultures that may think about medical interventions and also the self and the body and the mind in radically different traditions and frameworks, how are you considering those questions when it comes to developing your technology and potentially thinking about an international export of it? Yes. Yeah, so, for example, our, uh, this technology was used in Europe. It had European Union approval for about five years. And there are notable differences between regulatory processes and how one can take a product to market in different countries. Many of these standards have been are evolving and changing internationally. And clearly, it's, it would be easier to implant or do some of these interventional technologies 
in second or third world countries where they have less regulatory limitations. And many, many companies do look at that as a, as a mechanism to test or evaluate their technologies or products. There is no international standards that I'm aware of. Uh, and the European Union has its own. It's slightly different than the United States. The European Union, at least on biotech, has become much more aggressive in the last year um, with the MDR program. And, and it makes it very difficult for companies and very expensive for companies to launch these technologies. So I'm somewhat more of an advocate of looking at these companies and say the challenges we have to bring these new technologies at least to a limited market because the costs are, are prohibitive. However, I do agree with you that from a assessment perspective, there should be international standards on how uh, a product should be applied for, how it should be launched, how we should do the regulatory process. I'm not aware that that exists, and that should be something that we should strive for. I do believe if products are manufactured in the U.S. or Europe, it would be illegal to sell them in other countries if they don't meet the similar standards that we have in the U.S. and Europe. So there are some export type regulations that do help, but there is no international standard and that, that somehow should be applied. But then coming full circle is what you said, which is we have different measurements or assessments based on different ethnic groups, different social groups, different financial groups. And in the world, uh, is there a standard for pain? Is there a standard for cognitive function? Is there a standard for rehabilitation? You know, you can jokingly say, you know, a, a person in the United States needs to be able to sit down in a chair, bend their knees to 90 degrees and get up and go function. We don't need that much out of a knee replacement. But if we look at a patient in Japan where they have to squat down and get down to eat and they have to put their legs behind them and they have to flex the 130 degrees and you go, hey, these are completely different functions, yet we perform the same surgery, the same procedures, and yet they have massive different expectations of recoveries. This, these kind of standards are difficult. And that's why I've pushed a lot more for looking at these type of 3D and four-dimensional four assessments, because with video work, it's more objective and it will give you a better, better standard. And uh, maybe that's a, a better way to look at this than what we're currently doing. And the FDA and the regulatory bodies are all the same. Again, they use these written language, written descriptions, which makes it difficult because of ethnic, social, geographic disparities. Are there applications to the technology that you've created beyond the uh, applications that you are found and uh, the ways in which you're implementing the technology? For example, is your understanding of the brain developed through the processing and uh, design of these technologies opening up for you new possibilities for the application of the technology or the knowledge that you've accumulated? If so, what are those applications? What do they look like? What might they be? Well, if we look at central nervous system disorders, uh, the whole untapped area is childhood where patients are born or have early central nervous system injuries, lesions, diseases. Um, being able to access the brain, deliver potentially not just pharmaceuticals, but nutrients and or supplements and or biologics might allow us to look at neurorestorative function. Much like I told you earlier about a joint, can we fix the cartilage and they have a normal knee again? Can we go back and do something like this to the brain? And I think what this has allowed us to do is look at concepts of neurorestoration, meaning can we make the brain function optimally? And that has something to do with potentially nutritional options. It has something to do with pharmacologic options. It has something to do with biologic therapies and treatments so that we can develop not less invasive or non-invasive approaches to treat uh, central nervous system injuries or lesions. I think a lot of that also has to do with nutrition. I learned a lot about that when we looked at something simple called uh, fish oil. Fish oil is something everybody knows as a supplement. Well, fish oil has two major components. One is called DHA and one is called EPA. Those are the two biggest components. Well, DHA is, was actually identified and discovered and found to be a nutritional supplement that helps children with brain function and myelin formation. And it's now a supplement in every Enfamil, every bottle of children's formula. It's a standard now. And this was one of the first steps. You look at that. And what we identified is EPA, which I've done some research on, is an anticoagulant and actually stops platelets from functioning. So you don't want the children to have the EPA component, but could this 
functions somewhere else. And what it taught me was that the access to the central nervous system in childhood may make substantive differences on, on development, growth, and thinking that the brain can be molded, modified, changed in a neuro-restorative fashion, as I think the, is what we're, we're really dreaming of and saying, we can look at the brain and say, hey, I can heal this as opposed to I can just treat it or I have to deal with the damaged tissue. And that goes full circle as we age. That's the biggest problem we have with aging. You see Alzheimer's patients, they have perfectly neuro, normal function. Uh, my mother had Alzheimer's, but she had she was completely normal. She could function, her heart, everything, everything else in her body was working well. But we had no way to treat dementia, central nervous system disorders, because we couldn't access the brain. And then can we once, we can eliminate plaque, possibly seed the brain with stem cells. Can we also then deliver nutritional supplements that will enhance that function, enhance the insulators, the myelins, enhance the collagen infrastructures, and allow us to grow more normal function? Or a handicapped person or someone that's quadriplegic or paraplegic changes the paradigm of how we can treat these things. And that goes for the central nervous system, but it also may have the same effect in the peripheral body with patients like diabetics and others that have these permanent injuries from the medical treatments and medical complications of, of diabetes. Do we have a new way of treating this at a more cellular level? And so can we take what we're looking at centrally and look at this peripherally as well? Because of this whole mind-body thing, believe it or not, the peripheral body has these same barriers, restrictions, and if we can find new ways to treat at a microscopic level, we may have also treated some of the other challenges we see. I want to delve a little bit into the mind-body tech problem. Currently, many technologists or many creators of technologies that employ neural networks or other aspects that are essentially attempts to mimic brain function are claiming that their works and innovations are getting closer to consciousness. Jeffrey Hinton, famously, uh, and many others are making the case that AI may help us model and better understand brain function and things like what it means to intuit or reason or think. Are our AI technologies changing how we understand the brain or even the mind? Can this understanding change how we think about creating technologies to intervene into brain function? Certainly. It depends on how broadly you want to define AI and what functionality you're looking for. So for example, we're looking at algorithms in a, in a more finite model where we're saying, how can we apply the proper doses, time those doses to mo for the most safe and efficacious way to deliver this into the brain, open, close the blood-brain barrier, and deliver these at a specific level. Those are simpler forms of artificial intelligence. Just, just uh, yesterday at Davos, where they're having the World Forum, uh, they're talking about AI will soon be superior in function to many humans, and maybe we don't need people around that artificial intelligence will you know, basically eliminate the need for people altogether. So you can, what I'm trying to say is you have these massive extremes of what artificial intelligence is perceived as. I think um, as we look at it from a medical perspective, clearly it's going to change because it's going to change medicine because it can personalize medical care. There are, for example, subtle differences between men and women with certain different pharmaceuticals. For example, let's take ambience, a simple sleeping medication, which is gender related. Can we start to look at this and say, is it more the gender related, is it functional related, activity, time of day, what you've eaten, how you can, how you function at that time to optimize the dosage, the treatments, the therapies? I think AI has a tremendous amount of opportunity in these particular aspects to personalize and individualize care, diagnostics, and treatment. Will it completely change how we treat the central nervous system? It will make substantive difference, I believe, in our dosing and our treatments and our ability to assess and diagnose. Is it going to substitute for the brain? That I, that I don't know. And in fact, uh, the opposite risk is maybe it'll make you less cognizant, less willing to think or work on your own if that's the case. But does having a substantive model via neural networks or artificial neurons that seem to, at least as many of these technologists reason, replicate or in some way mimic the output of thought by way of trying to model what the brain functionally does when it reasons or thinks, does that change our understanding of the brain at all? Does that kind of modeling 
through the neural network model of, of artificial intelligence change anything about how we think about the mind or the brain? I think it can. The biggest challenge I have with it is it's, it's data in is data out. So who or what is the model that you're putting the data in to mimic those networks? Is it the same as yours? Is it different than yours? What is yours? And that's where I come back to this, the personalizing medicine. These neural networks, if they're functionally going to work and not to change who you are or how you function, need to have data inputs that mimic your particular data. And unfortunately, so much of what AI is doing is accumulating data from a swath of people and trying to individualize it. And I think that's where many of the challenges run in is that you may not have enough specific data to one individual to be able to truly uh, model neural networks that uh, are similar to your own personality, to your own function, to your own life. And so I think we take the risk of potentially homogenizing people and homogenizing thought and processes if we use these AI algorithms too aggressively because we no longer are individuals because you're pooling data and there's risks of pooling data in terms of what comes out of that. And it turns you, you know, it will turn this functional activity, these electrical uh, neural networks into homogenized process that, that may not replicate who you are or what you are. In recent years, some of those same technologists that I just referenced, as well as you know, folks well-known in the uh, tech circuit like Mark Zuckerberg, Elon Musk, and Brian Johnson, who is the founder of the payment processing company Braintree, have all announced neurotechnology projects for restoring or even enhancing human abilities. And as we enter into what I, what I think may be a new era of extra human intelligence, I wonder how you're thinking about those projects. Do you think that they have credibility? Are they doing things that are interesting to you? Do you see them going anywhere? Or do you think that this is somewhat of a you know science fiction fantasy? No, I think that there's clearly many mechanisms that we can optimize or enhance using artificial intelligence. The challenge, I believe, though, is still comes back to data in and data out. And if you if you have garbage or data that's inaccurate or questionable going in and you put it in through these formulas, what comes out may not necessarily mimic what you are or what is natural or biologic or within that optimizes your thought processes or your activities. So that's that's the challenge I see. But I do see that, for example, for diagnosis, treatment therapies, for medical management, for optimizing function, people working together and how to optimize those functionalities, I do see tremendous advantages and tremendous opportunities. My fear is that it, homo it will homogenize people and turn, turn individual function into more groupthink and group function. And that may change the way people exist, coexist. I think we have time for one last question. A lot of students, folks in the humanities and, and folks in STEM, graduate students and undergraduate students listen to the show. Where do you think the field is going or may go by the time that they enter into the workforce? What would you want them to know or understand or think about as they go into careers that may leverage their studies into this kind of work? I can see my, my greatest advantage is that I'm an old guy. I'm 66 years old now. I've been doing this for a long time. And when I started medicine allowed a lot of freedoms to think, to understand, to build a business, do uh, and evaluate technologies that were exciting, interesting, different, both in an academic environment and a private practice environment. And my concern is that that, that has changed as, as medicine and much of business has become conglomerated into larger single thinking, uh, single-minded, large corporations that no longer allow individual thought or individual activity and focus mostly on these large multinational companies that direct and dictate processes, treatments, therapies, and medicine, both from a financial perspective as well as, as, well as from a thought process. So I would say it's been 
even though there are more potential opportunities, I see there's a lot more restrictions or roadblocks for individuals starting off to be able to be creative, innovative, and to function, even though it appears when we see tech and AI that they offer new opportunities and new experiences, I would argue that it really falls only in the hands of those companies or business units that have huge amounts of capital. So what I'm trying to say is that I do think there's exciting times, there's tremendous amounts of opportunity, but I do believe that to strike out and be something new, different, original is probably more challenging now than it's ever been and more capital driven than it's ever been, which means it makes it more difficult for young people to find their place, their opportunity uh, to shine, to do something unique, individual, different. Even though uh, I, would, uh, I, would, I would say many of the tech people would argue that, I'm, that that's not accurate, I, I do see that there's more challenges for the young, intellectual, stimulated person who wants to really innovate, I think there's more roadblocks than there have been in the past. What keeps you optimistic despite those roadblocks? I keep plugging away. <laughs> I keep finding people that have similar thought process to myself. And um, that relates to whether it's raising capital or finding new people that can help uh, develop these technologies. They're out there. You just got to keep plugging away. So persistence maybe is is the most important and probably the thing I've learned the most is that nothing happens overnight. Hard work, you gotta put your own time, your own money, your own effort, and things will follow through, but it takes a long time. Nothing happens so quickly or simply. Thank you very much, Peter. Thanks, appreciate your time.